All right, Jamie, we are live. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I am doing excellent. Now that I'm talking to you, um, it's been it, it's funny. We were we were just chatting about this before we hit record, but I, I've been able to talk to you and get to know you a little bit over the last a year and a half or so. And you host one of the most popular shows on our network now. But we actually haven't brought you onto this podcast before, so it's a real treat to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited about our conversation. Yes, yes, as am I. There's so much we could talk about. And as I was thinking a little bit about what is it that I really want to like pick Jamie's brain on, there were so many topics that came to mind. But you recently became CMO at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. Before that, you were at Miami University in Ohio. And I, I thought it would be interesting to at least start this conversation by hearing a little bit about how you think from your perspective, from your friends' perspectives, how you think higher ed as as a body is is doing at equipping CMOs like yourself for success. Like what's going well and what needs to change? Oh, that is a fantastic question and one I've been pondering a little bit. I think that higher ed in general is not equipping CMOs well for yeah. these roles. And when I talk to my counterparts across the country, I realize how lucky I am here to be working for a president that has put our brand and our marketing efforts in our strategic plan as the number two goal and is resourcing it appropriately and understands that things take time and hasn't been rushing me. But across the country, when I talk to people, CMOs are really burned out. They're being asked to do everything. So they're doing not just marketing, but crisis communications and issues management and event planning and all of these things, typically with super under-resourced staff, often having to pay salaries to those staff that mean you're getting an entry-level person for a position that shouldn't be entry-level and not with sufficient budgets and with kind of crazy demands. Like, we want to rebrand and we need the new brand in six months. Like, (laughs) that's not a reasonable request at all. So I just think higher ed has a lot it needs to learn. It's a much better. I've been in higher ed for 19 years. It's much better than it was when I started in 2004, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah. A long way to go. Do you think with with everything happening right now with, uh, it's, it's obviously not news that the industry as a whole is under more scrutiny maybe now than it ever has been, or at least has been for, for a long time, you're seeing students just make even students from positions of privilege decide to to not enroll at a college or university, right? Take a different alternative path or at least take a non-traditional path. You're also just seeing many, many, many individuals just questioning the ROI of a degree, right? So all that to say, schools are closing, right? Schools are emerging. We're probably going to see a lot more of that, especially from like the smaller liberal arts institutions. But from, from your perspective, like, do you think given the pressure that the industry is under, that folks are going to finally turn to marketing as, as sort of like this savior? And, or like, how do you think the industry is responding? What, what do you think they think the the solution is if it's not to better resource the marketing department? Right. Well, I see a lot of campuses doing things like, we're going to solve this problem by launching new programs or mm. moving into the online space for the first time as an institution or fill in the blank with whatever flashy thing. But then I'm also seeing 
but we're not allocating any marketing dollars to promote these new programs, mm. initiatives, fill in the blank. And so I think that there's going to be a real wake-up call post-pandemic. A lot of schools got the um, money from the government yeah. that kind of kept them afloat through the pandemic, and they could kind of play around with doing things. Yeah. Now that money's gone, and I think there's a real awakening that needs to happen where you see, yeah, we spun up these online programs that we're, we haven't marketed. Yeah. The moment's not meeting expectations. What do we do? And hopefully presidents are listening to their CMOs say, this isn't if you build it, they will come. Yeah. You have to have some marketing spend allocated. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that when it comes to that 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 allocation of spend or, or resources, do you think presidents know what to do? Like, did you really think there's more of this, like, this paralysis? Because there, there's quite frankly just a significant disconnect in what marketing means today versus what it meant when they were starting out in, in their respective careers. Like, do you think that there's just like a big knowledge gap there? Absolutely. I mean, most college presidents have come up through academia. Yeah. So they were professors and then they were chairs and deans, provosts, whatever. None of those positions ever really intersects with marketing. Yeah. So by the time they get to that president seat, they're just not, they haven't worked with marketing really much. They don't see its value. In a lot of cases, faculty are super dismissive of marketing and branding yeah. as waste of money. All money should just go to the academic side of things. And they don't understand that to enroll a class to get the revenue that they need to get paid, we have to market and, yeah. and brand our institutions. So I think I wish that every president, every first time president in particular, got like a, this is what you need to know. I think Terry Flannery's How to Market a University is a really good first step for presidents. Yeah. yeah. But every single one needs like a crash course. Yeah. If I'm going to like bust out and have a career after this, <laughs> maybe it'll be telling college presidents, this is what you need to know. And this is how you need to be doing things. Yeah. Because it's it, there's just a lack of understanding, I think. I want to say across the board, but, you know, talking to my friends, it seems like one out of 10 of my friends actually has a president who understands it. Again, very lucky to be where I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's an incredibly small percentage. And there are a lot of, yeah, a a lot of institutions that need need a lot of help. Otherwise, they really are just going to slowly shudder, right, or merge, which I think when you have to merge because it's like the last thing that you, you, you know, you can do. It's really sort of a lose-lose for everybody. It's a lose for your students. It's a lose for alum. It's a lose for your faculty and staff. It's always positioned as kind of like a win, right? Like we're we're coming together and we're you know we're going to be better together. But in reality, it, it it ends up being this. I feel like overnight, all of a sudden, you you hear the you hear this news and everyone seems shocked, right? And yet, these things shouldn't be shocking. There should be years and years and years of signal that there's a problem. It doesn't actually just happen overnight. No, it's not like a president wakes up and is like, hey, I want to go through all the work that it takes to merge two institutions <laughs> because I feel like it. I think it'll be fun. It is so much. I, I'm at a school where we're merging with somebody and it's a massive multi-year undertaking yeah. to bring this college into our fold. And it is traumatic yeah. for the people on on that campus. You know, there's concerns about losing their identity and yeah. going from being a private employee to a public employee. And yeah, yeah. Fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 certainly scary, and yet like I also think that there's 
there's remarkable opportunity, right? Um, and I think you're you're doing a, a really good job of I think helping people who might feel alone in in their own context, kind of see an example of somebody who is taking risks, right? Who who's trying to be bold, who's out there calling, saying you know provocative things at times, right? To to get leadership's attention about the importance of. Uh, equipping your CMO with the resources that he or she needs to be successful and, and their teams as well. I did want to pick your brain a little bit because of the context that you do find yourself in. When when working with the president and the rest of the leadership team, well, how, in the context of the strategic plan, what are like your core objectives? Like, What are they holding you uh, and your team accountable to? Yeah, so we are tasked with building and enhancing the university's brand. That's like our number one priority. Supporting recruitment of students, supporting revenue generation through licensing and fundraising. And then we actually have something that I think isn't part of most higher ed marketing offices priorities, and that's retention. Mm. So we do a lot of work and intend to continue to do more work on supporting our efforts to improve retention rates and graduation rates. Yeah. And a lot of times that's something that's seen as the job of student affairs or academic success or whatever. Yeah. But we see us as having a role in that. Mm. Part of it is communicating to students what resources they have available to them to help them avoid having to drop out. Yeah. Have avoid failing a class, that kind of thing. So for us, those are our biggest priorities in the department. We call them the four R's. It's Recruitment, retention, revenue generation, and reputation. Yeah. Those are our efforts. I, I love I love the attention on retention because from a purely business perspective, it's a, it's a lot easier to retain a customer that you already have than attract and, uh, and acquire a new one. And and yet that is something that not not enough schools are able to uh, pay pay enough attention to. You just you, you assume that people you got them once right? The admissions team did their job and and then they'll graduate four years later and you'll have four years that they're paying tuition and then they'll graduate and then they'll eventually start giving back to, to, to your respective institution. And yet time and time again, we understand that like, especially these days, that's, that's, there's no guarantee that when they walk through and sit through orientation on that first day, that they're also going to be walking on the stage at graduation. Yeah. I mean, if you have a retention rate of 70%, that means looking at a group of 10 incoming freshmen, three are not going to make it to sophomore year. Yeah. And mm. if you have a, you know, a 50% graduation rate, fully half of the students that start are not finishing. Yeah. And that's r- bad on so many levels, but to your point on the business level, you're losing a ton of revenue yeah. when you only have someone matriculate for one year two years, three years, not finish the whole process. So there's a business case for it, but there's a moral and ethical case for it too, yeah. bringing in students who are acquiring debt and then not leaving with a degree. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to do better yeah. as, a, as an industry. Well, it happened again. Prospect Paul is excited about attending your institution, but is getting consistently confused by all of the information and tasks he needs to complete to enroll, creating friction, and even worse, possible melt. You knew this would happen again, which is why you've been flagging the need for a come to Jesus meeting with leadership from marketing, admissions, and IT to audit the digital experience for prospective students. Here's the problem. 
You're not gonna convince Mark from marketing to let go of his marketing automation software. Adriana from admissions just got set up with her new CRM and Isabel from IT is still working through ticket requests from last Christmas. But what if you could come to the table with a solution that didn't require anyone to let go of their software while at the same time ensuring a frictionless experience for prospects and current students alike? Well, my friend, guess what? Today is your lucky day. Meet Pathify, an innovative higher ed engagement hub that puts students at the center of their college journey. Pathify sits at the center of your school's digital ecosystem, becoming the single user experience interface tying together all systems, content, and communications. Their engagement hub elevates the information that matters most and pushes systems like your SIS behind the scenes where they belong, which makes it simpler for students to discover and engage with the opportunities your institution provides at every step of their higher ed journey, from prospect all the way through to alumni. What's even better is that Pathify has a mobile experience that provides 100% parity with the responsive web app, so your campus app is always in sync. Pathify is a platform that every stakeholder on campus, from marketing to admissions to student affairs to IT, etc., can get equally excited about. You can learn more about how Pathify is uniting strategic units across campus and bettering the entire student experience by visiting pathify.com. And be sure to tell them that Zach from the Enrollify podcast sent you their way. Again, that's pathify.com. And be sure to mention that you heard about them on the Enrollify podcast. All right, folks, back to the show. When when you and your team are thinking through strategies and tactics, whether it's for recruitment or, or retention, what are some things that you think you all need to start doing more of or you plan to start doing more of that that you historically haven't done or haven't been able to do? Yeah. So here we are trying to make our prospective student journeys more robust and more personalized. Mm. And so what we're going to be working toward, we're taking over top of the funnel, not with this class, but with the next class. And we want to build out over the next year, the student journeys where we're collecting as much information as we can about a student and their interests to give them super personalized communications. And I think with generative AI tools like ChatGPT and others, we're going to be better positioned to be able to create you, Zach, get an email, yeah. and you are the only person that's getting that specific message. Yeah. It is what well, it is tailored to you, Zach. Yeah. And so I see more of that happening. I also see, honestly, this is going to sound a little weird, but I think we're going to be spending a little bit more in the traditional marketing sphere. Yeah. I think digital marketing, the ROI is a little bit hard to tie back. But I don't think anybody's like, oh, look, I'm on the ESPN site. Oh, an ad for school. I'm going to go apply right now. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. I think sending stuff to the home, we did an analysis and we actually think that our out of home had a big impact. When we started doing some out of home things, we got a lot more traffic. And of course, it's a little hard to do a one to one there, but we're going to be doing more out of home as well. Yeah. Making it so that like the whole Hampton Roads region sees. Old Dominion University as their university, yeah, um, stuff like that. And I also think we have to be thinking about like text messaging, yeah. chatbots, yeah, stuff that really enhances that two-way communication, yeah, with prospective students. 
HubSpot is a, a huge, you know, marketing automation platform in the space. They're really kind of now positioning themselves as a true CRM. They've been doing that for a few years and they're really trying to take on Salesforce at the end of the day. But they had their annual marketing conference. It's actually going on like this week as we're as we're recording it. And I didn't get to go this year, which is sad because it's oh, it's such a fantastic event. But one, I, I caught a little bit of the keynote that the CEO was giving. And one of the things that she said, which really stood out to me, she was like, you know, today customers, they don't come to your website to just find information. They come to your website to have a conversation. The reality yeah. is like today, even though all the information is there and we expect it to be there, and if somebody really wants to take the time to navigate through your website, to go through all your drop downs and, and kind of self-service, great, that's awesome. You, you have to make sure that they're able to do that if they want to. But the reality is most folks, even though the information's there, we're lazy. Like consumers yes. are lazy. Like we we know that you probably have this in your FAQ somewhere, but I don't care. I, I want to know. I want I want to ask the question in the way that I know how to ask the question. And I want Jamie from ODU to give me the answer in 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 the vehicle and through the channel that 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 I'm operating in. I don't want to have to go to a different channel or a different portal to ask that question. And yeah. that is. That, you know, the major brands in the space, major, major corporations, like the Fortune 500, they've invested in the technology and the staff where we now have that expectation of brands. So why wouldn't, right, a 17-year-old have the same expectation when they're on ODU's website? A hundred percent. I mean, when I go to buy something, if I have a question, I am not digging in the FAQs. No. I'm going to their live chat. Yeah. A hundred percent of the time. And we're acting like somehow higher ed is different. Yeah. Totally. You're totally right. This is the most important decision of their lives. Yeah. Aside from who they choose to spend the rest of their life with, yeah. you know, as a partner or whether they want to have kids. Other than that, your college choice is a massively important decision and people don't want to dig around. And then we have to be thinking about voice search too. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, a lot of people aren't using Google to do their search. They're using voice to do yeah. search. And it's a changing world. And I, I worry that we're not keeping up. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, I think a, a, a tweet that you put out the other day really caught my eye, which, and I'd love for you to just maybe uh, unpack it a little bit more if, you, if you'd like, but you said something along the lines of, you know, we live in a knowledge economy that no longer values higher education. And I read that and I was like, oh my gosh, you're so right. Like, how funny is that, right? I just wanted to give you the opportunity, if you'd like, to expand a little bit on what, what you meant by that. Yeah, I was sitting there thinking about what kind of economy we have. Like, I was working on writing something and I, I needed, like, the adjective yeah. to describe our, our global economy or whatever. That wasn't the phrase global economy. And I was thinking about, like, we're really a knowledge and service economy, right? Yeah. We're not a production economy anymore. So those two areas are the areas where most of our careers in this country are in. And we're in a situation where people are undervaluing even K-12 education. Yeah but very undervaluing higher education in a knowledge economy. And I don't know if they're thinking about, I'm feisty today. I don't know <laughs> if they're thinking about like the long-term effects of that yeah. being, are we going back to a production economy? Mm. And that's fine. If that's what we're deciding as a society we want to do, I just don't think we are. Yeah, I don't think that those are the jobs that people in a large quantities want to have. Yeah, Not that they're bad jobs. I come from a blue collar family. I come from a family that was very specifically in the production 
space of things. But I like that I had options where I didn't have to do physical work or, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm a little worried that we're going to get to a point where it's going to be like back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, where the only people who can get have the option of choosing careers based on their interests are those whose families prioritize education and everybody else is now in a service job. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with service jobs, but that's not what everybody wants. And if you don't have an education, sometimes that's all you can get. Yeah. Yeah. If if you, I think what you're saying too is like, if you're not enabling like the choice, that's the problem, right? Yeah. If you enable choice, great. Yeah. Choose what you will, choose what you want. But the reality is if we go in, if we keep going in this direction, we're unintentionally removing choice from, from the equation. Yes. I want to earn my income from my brain. I know that my body is fragile. I have a disability. I I want to get my income from my brain, but I have that choice because I have a degree and that is exactly what I'm saying. And I think like, you know, maybe my nephew wants to follow in his dad's footsteps and be an electrician. That is fantastic. Yeah. But if he wants to be a veterinarian or an accountant or something, then he's going to have to choose a path to have some higher education to do that. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's interesting too about all this conversation, right, is there are so many boot camps that have popped up, right? That actually like by and large, I I have friends who've gone through some of these accelerators and they have landed some pretty remarkable jobs and they're doing really well. And the investment that they made in these, you know, boot camps or these accelerators was a fraction of the investment that other friends who took a more traditional path and studied computer science, for instance, at a four-year institution yielded. And what's super interesting is that I think you miss out a lot on a lot. If you just opt for the accelerator, great, you get the job, but you obviously miss out on the holistic experience that higher education offers. And and I actually think that this is a huge opportunity for folks. It's like, hey, the liberal arts, I think it could, could have a moment again where it's like, wait a second, like we spent the last, I don't know, couple decades maybe really, really, really prioritizing STEM and you know, especially people from more privileged backgrounds, right, want their children to pursue STEM degrees. And, and you know, that that will continue and that's incredibly important i also think for a large group of people it's really going to be about how do we really equip people to think how, yeah. how do we encourage people to to reason again yeah and that's like that all comes from higher education right yeah and, and i think that there's this huge marketing and like branding moment that the industry could have and yet i don't feel like it's the the capitalization of that and the execution of that it's not there's no one that comes to mind that's doing that in at a national scale that's that's garnering attention and i think that that needs to be done 100 percent agree and i'm kind of chuckling when you're talking because when i started working at uw oshkosh in 2007 the chancellor there met with me and tasked me with how do we talk about liberal arts education how do we talk about why this is important and so that was my first introduction to the idea that liberal arts was something that we needed to create a frame around mm. for people to appreciate. And that was now 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. And if anything, we backslid. Yeah. There, there just hasn't been that messaging. And he used to say, this is Chancellor Richard Wells, he used to say, 
we don't teach you what to think. We teach you how to think. Mm. And in the world right now where we live in a culture that has so much disinformation, yeah. I think part of what you're learning in college is how to discern yeah. what is real and what isn't, how to make independent decisions for yourself based on the evidence presented. Yeah. I just think it's really important. And I think, honestly, work life is 100% a group project. Yeah. <laughs> and you get a lot of those in college and to kind of prepare you for, you know, when, you know, Bob and accounting isn't pulling his weight on a project. Yeah. You have experience with that because Bob was probably also not pulling his weight in your group project <laughs> in college. Oh, gosh. Yes. So well said. And, you know, just one one last comment on that, too, is I think there is a lot of like, you know, distrust and, and mistrust of, of higher ed, because depending on, you know, where you are at or the context that you uh, were raised in, the background, the religious beliefs, whatever it might be, the things that you hold dear, I think, I think, and I don't necessarily believe that this is true. I think the way that it's been marketed and positioned can act, could be that like higher ed is an adversary to that, right? Like people, you know, the, the narrative that, uh, you know, uh, peers of mine heard kind of like growing up was like, you go to college and you lose you lose your faith in everything, right? Because you you get exposed yeah. to all this stuff and blah blah blah. <laughs> and there's a lot I could say about that, but but the the reality of the situation is that I think that schools have this opportunity to to really lean into what your chancellor said, which is like, hey, how do we really do the work of teaching our students how to think, not what to think, right? And I, and that's really really hard to do. I had professors who did an exceptional job at that. And then I had, other, I had other professors that were very clear on what the right way to think was and what the right things <laughs> to believe were. And and again, it doesn't, especially today, like with, you know, Gen Z and Gen Alpha coming after, they have like really great bullshit detectors, right? Meaning like if they smell or sense any agenda that you're throwing at them, they just kind of tune out, right? And, and yeah. I don't think we want a generation that, tunes out to come into this this workforce. I don't think we could afford it, quite frankly. Yeah, no, 100%. When you were talking about like your your friends and the beliefs and everything, I was thinking about my husband's grandpa who raised him said like, it's one thing to have an open mind, but if you open it too much, your brains are going to fall out. Mm. And that's kind of like the mentality of, you know, opening your mind makes you start to question your beliefs or whatever. But, you know, looking at it more as like an opportunity to strengthen your beliefs because you're they're being held against something else. But yeah, I do think, you know, Gen Z and and Gen Alpha are going to be really interesting. That bullshit detector yeah. is strong and their tolerance for bullshit basically yeah. is really low. Yeah. It's yeah. really low. Like they are not here for it and they will tell you that. Yeah. Like they're, con- I don't want to say confrontational because that's not exactly what I mean, but they will confront things. Yeah. Uh, I think much more than previous, my generation, I'm Gen X. Like it was like, we're just lucky to have anybody pay attention to us. So <laughs> we just roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, I, it's going to be an exciting time to see how all of this uh, plays out. When I think about you, Jamie, and, and just the work that you've done over the last several years, I followed you long before I actually had the opportunity to get to know you a little bit, but you, you know, I, I've always seen you as this innovator in in the space, and you've just done a really you've been very vulnerable in like putting yourself out there and sharing your thoughts and sharing your ideas, and that's just not something that you see every day, especially in the context of higher education leadership role. And I think 
you know, I'd love to see more of that. And I would encourage our listeners here, do more of that because because everyone needs it. We, we, you know, we all need it. I, I, what is it that like drives you? Like, how do you have the time to be in 27 meetings, you know, <laughs> in the first half of this week? And then also put something thought provoking out on Twitter and then host this podcast that you host. Like, what is it that drives you? What keeps you going? Where, where do you get your like inspiration from? That's, that's a fantastic question. People ask me all the time, when do I sleep? And I actually, my number one priority is to get eight hours of sleep every night. <laughs> like I deliberately, I have a ritual and I go to bed at the same time every night. So I sleep. Yeah. I don't have kids. That's one. That gives me some time. But in terms of what drives me, I believe so much in the power of higher education. Mm. I live where I live. I have the life that I have solely because I went to college and I was able to capitalize on what I learned to get the career that I've had. And I believe so strongly in it. But what I believe in secondarily to that is that marketing has the potential to save higher ed in this country. And that what drives me is helping my colleagues across the country get the tools and the resources and whatever to be able to be effective at their institution. Because frankly, Old Dominion University, it competes with you know, a handful of schools. Yeah. I'm not going to give them my secrets necessarily Yeah, because there are our competitors, but with 4,000 schools in the country, yeah. that's, you know, 3,990 schools I'm not competing with that. I actually think that helping to build up higher education in those institutions is good for all of us. It's that rising tide lifts all boats. So I prioritize my sleep, my relationship with my husband, my job, and then right after that is giving back to this the higher ed marketing community as much as I can, because I, I just think that there's bigger benefits to that than just the individual. Yeah. Do you think from your perspective, how how is the industry doing specifically higher ed marketers at at like sharing information and, and at networking and, and sort of like being together is do you feel like since you've been in higher ed for almost a couple decades now? How how do you think that community has ebbed and, and flowed and, and formed, grown, if, if at all? I've seen a lot of involvement in a lot of the different organizations that put out professional development. So you have like CASE and AMA yeah. and CUPRAP and all of those, PRSA. I've seen a growth in the offerings that are offered beyond just a conference. So I'm seeing more webinars, more virtual opportunities. I love to see the virtual opportunities that are at a lower price point because a lot of our colleagues at smaller schools are just, they just don't have the budget, yeah. but they still need the skills. But I think this industry is so good at sharing ideas, sharing generously. Yeah. I was talking with my friend Jamie Seaman at Chapman University yesterday, and she was trying to reach out to one of our counterparts at another school. And we both reached out multiple times and we hadn't heard back. And we were both saying like, we're real, like, that's not cool. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> if somebody reaches out from me to me from another school, I will respond within a, like a minimum number of, of business days because I won't want somebody to do that for me too. Yeah. We face the same challenges. We have the same issues. Like we've got to give to each other yeah. and support each other. I also get there's people who just like they can't. They have so many things going on in yeah. their lives that they can't let people pick their brains every week. Yeah. 
But I have at least one person every single week that I meet with. Wow. To pick my brain. Yeah. Um, and I certainly hope if I reach out to somebody, I will get the same. And I'll tell you, when I was dealing with a big issue at Miami University, I reached out to somebody I'd never met before at a school I had no connection at. He was on vacation. He called me from his vacation wow. to help me with something. And that's what this industry is all about, I think. I yeah. think we're givers. We're supporters. We're helpers. Yeah. Yeah. It's so well said. And I think that a lot of that, right, derives from really your willingness to be vulnerable and, and vulnerable in like a, a fairly like public way. Like when you when you are taking the time to kind of share your perspective or your thoughts or your wins or, or failures, whatever it is publicly, it immediately, I think, gives people permission to to interact. And and even for all those who like don't interact and don't reach out and don't, you know, request time to pick your brain, you're, you're still sort of providing this sort of inspiration and hope and you know, if if nothing else, feeling like, oh, wow, it's, you know, my current, I'm not alone in like my current reality. I'm not alone in this feeling or this challenge. Somebody else has has charted this path before me or is walking alongside me through this particular moment that I that I might be uh, experiencing. And that's, I think, super, super important for community building in any context, but especially in higher ed during a time where there needs to be way more collaboration than ever before if if the industry is going to prosper again and you know e- even grow and 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 help tell the world that no 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 this narrative that has been painted about higher education is actually like not true and let's let's prove it to you let's do the work of proving it to you i love that and when you mentioned the vulnerability I had a fairly like polished presentation of who I was on social, on Twitter in particular, LinkedIn, when I started my my professional accounts about six years ago. And when I started sharing more personal stuff, more vulnerable stuff, more things that indicated that I don't have all the answers, or I have a personality, or I have weird interests, or I'm a weirdo, <laughs> I got several people saying, you made me see that I could be a CMO. I thought I was to fill in the blank, mm. to ever achieve a vice presidency. And so seeing somebody who's a fill in the blank makes me feel like I could do it too. Wow. And so then that, when I got that positive feedback, it was like, no, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the weird person that I am and be vulnerable a little bit on social media. So people see that we don't have it all together. Yeah, We're all human beings with weird issues and problems in our lives. So to me, that's also something where I feel like it's hopefully helping mentor the next generation by example. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to be, you know, the most polished human being on earth to get one of these gigs. You just have to put in the work. Well, and what that might actually do, which is which I think would be hugely beneficial, right, is higher ed is, you know, the, the classic like ivory tower analogy that everyone uses, This this classic like, incredibly polished, right? You you put your best, you know, face forward all the time. You, you think about like a press conference and how everything is just, every word is obsessed over and the president has to use these exact, you know, words for all these political reasons. And and that, those connotations kind of like carry out and, and trickle down, I think, through through the leadership at an institution. And so when you see, when you see something that that is different, I think what it also does is it potentially becomes a talent attractor where it's like, oh, hey, like, I, I have always loved higher ed. I, I thought my ideas were a little too wacko or a little too crazy. 
or, or, or that I would have to be somebody that I'm actually not in order to work in this context. But when, you know, you're putting out funny tweets about, you know, tortoises or something like that, maybe, maybe he gives me the permission to be like, you know what? I, I actually am a really good marketer and I love this industry. And, and maybe, maybe there is an opportunity for me to be a leader in it. Whereas, you know, his, his, historically, I might've thought that I would have to go lead somewhere else because higher ed was a little bit too polished for me. I think that's so true. And I do think like sometimes there have been cases where I've been too weird for the place I've worked. And I've had to like put <laughs> it back a little bit, particularly when I was working in my digital marketing office reported up through IT and everybody was very buttoned up there. And I was like, very weird. But I do think there's some real truth to that. And I also, when I hear from students that they felt like I was approachable because they followed me on Twitter and saw I was posting about Star Wars or my tortoise or whatever, that makes me feel good. Yeah. I want students to want to come to me. And when I came out as queer on social media, yeah, uh, that was just like the student representative to the board of trustees was like, now I know there's representation on our cabinet. Wow. Now I know that there's a voice in that conversation. That is so great. And that that's also really important to me for students to be like, okay, there's a woman with a disability who's queer on our cabinet. Those three things are, are rep being represented in leadership. Yeah. And that's important to me too. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's like an amazing story. And I think hopefully just like encouraging an encouraging reminder for others to, to be really open about sharing who you are and realizing like at the end of the day, even, you know, even if it's as simple as like a tweet that somebody sees the potential perception change that that has on the institution and the brand of the institution as a whole, it could be life changing. It, it could be truly monumental. I do want to ask you about your podcast because you host Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, which is a podcast on the Enrollify podcast network. And you've you know, recorded well over 30 episodes now talking to industry leaders uh, across the spectrum. And I remember when we first were brainstorming the, the idea for this show and, you know, what it might look like. And we, you know, you and I were talking and I, I, I was convinced from that first conversation that it was going to be, you know, a, a great show. I think I've been surprised in like the best possible way by how many people have really latched onto it and, and really come to look forward to, to every episode that you publish every couple of weeks. How has that experience been for you? Like, what is it like hosting a podcast amidst all of your other duties? What have you learned from the experience so far? I'm truly humbled that it's as popular as it as it is. I didn't know what to expect at all. And so I'm very humbled that that people seem to really like it. I get feedback almost every day from somebody. And I think one of the my favorite things is when, you know, people are like, this helped me solve a problem mm -hmm. or whatever. I absolutely love it. For me, I see it as like also an opportunity for me to have professional development in a way. Like I have, a, I'm curious about this. I'm going to talk to someone who knows more about this than I do. Yeah. Or bringing in guests that are solving a problem I'm currently having <laughs> happening <laughs> to share it with you. Um, with the listeners, I, I really also see it as a bit of a creative outlet for me in my job and all of our jobs. We kind of do what we have to do in the job. And this is like, I get to choose who I want to bring forward. Yeah. I get to be deliberate about what I'm trying to do here. And I want to stress that I'm trying to bring voices that aren't on every other podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So I want, you know, fresh faces. I want, 
people who haven't necessarily always had a seat at the table, bringing in a lot of diversity into the conversation, showcasing different types of institutions. I do a lot of intentionality. I plan out my my season. I usually have, you know, at least eight of the 12 episodes kind of thought out, and then I'm just scheduling them. A lot of people are like, I can't schedule for you in December, Jamie. It's too early. So <laughs> like, okay, well, I'll be reaching out to you in the end of November to set a date or whatever and get get people on the pipeline. But it's a very intentional process. And I didn't know that I was going to be as successful with it as I have, but I love it. Yeah. And I love that it's helping people. When people send me a note saying it helps them with something, that's like, that's a day maker for me. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that you have just you've just got really good like rapport with the people that you bring on too. And I, I also love the fact that you you have some episodes that are like very tactical and then other episodes that are really more general. It's more story driven. Like, hey, what happens yeah. when your role is eliminated? Like, what do you do? Right. And like having that really like broad conversation, but that could speak to anyone working in the industry versus speaking really specifically about you know, how higher ed marketers can leverage generative AI tools to streamline their processes to, to you know, help the, their teams become more efficient. And and I think it's, it's actually really hard as a podcast host myself to kind of go, you know, between like the high level stuff and then the deep tactical stuff. And sometimes you're like, is this way too specific? Do Is this too niche of a problem for our listeners? And then it's like, then you get that email and you're like, hey, thank you so much. This really helped. <laughs> And other times you think, wow, this was so broad. I don't know if this guest like did enough to, they just kind of told their story. I don't know if that was enough. And then you get another email where it's like, hey, I was so moved by so-and-so's story. Thank you so much. So it's really cool. It's hard to master that, but I think that you're doing a really good job of of oscillating between kind of both ends of the spectrum. Well, thank you. It is definitely a challenge, but it's, I get positive feedback on both types of episodes. So yeah. I think it's serving a niche. One of the things that really, I had to laugh at is Patrick accidentally published one episode a day early. And he <laughs> said it was like maybe it pushed out at 4 a.m. And at like nine, I was like, oh, it's already out there. And he's like, well, I would take it down, but it's already had 95 downloads. <laughs> and I'm like, that's awesome. Like, I love that there's people who are like, ooh, another episode. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me happy. Yeah, that's hilarious. And for context, Patrick's one of the producers here uh, at, at Enrollify. That's hilarious. I'll have to tell him that. Um <laughs> Well, my last question for you, Jamie, is is around folks who are tuning into this conversation who might be at that director level, may, might be an assistant director, and then they aspire to be a CMO one day. And I think people like you, if they're not already following you, they, they should be. But what are some thoughts that you have on what these individuals should be doing right now to kind of prepare for what, from your perspective, the role of the CMO needs to be in, in the near future? Yeah. If you are an aspiring CMO, I think you need to be really paying attention to what the emerging trends are because as you start interviewing for jobs of CMO, as you're interviewing for CMO jobs, you're going to get into situations where people are asking you about the innovations that you've brought to your organization. And if your innovation was, we started a Facebook account in 2008, you're not going to get the job. And uh, you left. But that was how a question was answered um, in an interview I had last month. Oh, jeez. Be more on the forefront of stuff. Hustle. Like, if you're looking for a promotion at your university, be on committees. Be volunteer for things. Bring forward ideas. Bring your boss solutions and not problems. Um, Be really forward thinking. 
stay on top of what's happening in the industry. Know what your peers are doing. Go to professional development. It's not going to just miraculously happen. Promotions don't usually happen just because you've been somewhere for a certain amount of time. Yeah, You have to really showcase that you are the right person to lead this. And that means doing those things. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I, I, if I could just add like one thing too, from my perspective, not that I should even have a perspective on this because I have never been a CMO and or have never hired for uh, <laughs> a CMO. But what, what I would imagine too is I know a fair number of folks who are, uh, you know, recruiters and help colleges and universities find their, their CMOs. And they spend a lot of time looking through LinkedIn, right. And looking mm-hmm. through social. And if you, if you can figure out like, Hey, what is it that I really care about? What What are the things that I really believe? And how do I create even just a little bit of content every week about that thing, right? Yeah. And being becoming a creator yourself, even though at the end of the day, hey, you're not going to be like posting TikToks necessarily, right? and, that, and that's okay. But like, what is it that you believe? And, and putting that out there, it, it's the best networking tool. Like, it, it's such a great networking tool. And from a you know, recruiter standpoint, when they're going and searching, if they just see your name over and over with these like cool ideas, you, you best believe they're going to slide into your DMs. (laughs) A hundred percent. What I tell people, I got this job because of a tweet. So I tweeted about positive, empathetic leadership. And then I was asked to write an article about triaging our talent during the pandemic. I wrote that article organization in Canada read that article and said, will you come speak at our conference? I went and spoke at a conference in the Toronto area and did that. Then when the university was looking for somebody, they were looking for people who'd spoken at conferences. And this was an international conference and my name came up. (laughs) Multiple people referred me to the president. And it's all because, you know, I started using Twitter with deliberation in 2017 to build a community and build a name and get my name out there and all of that. You're exactly right. I would not have this job at, without all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, like you, you obviously need the other things too. It's not enough to yes. just, to, not, to just, yes. you know, post on Twitter every day, but like, but the reality is like that when, when folks are searching for somebody, right. And, 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 and they want a better perspective, a more holistic perspective on how they think and who they are and whatnot. You can get a lot, right, from references and a resume and an interview, but you get so much more. And I think it just amplifies who you are when there's also sort of this like digital history of Jamie's thought, right? And I can go and I can look at that and I can understand, oh, wow, this is what she thinks about this kind of a thing. That stuff isn't going to come up in in an interview necessarily, right? And like the nuances and the, oh, hey, when it comes to, you know, creator marketing, this is what Jamie's take is on it. Like those sorts of things are just harder. They, they don't necessarily naturally come up in conversation, but they're really, it's, it's really, really helpful. Even from a recruiter standpoint, when they're trying to recommend top candidates to, to uh, an institution to be able to pull from that and say, wow, look at this person. They've got a podcast. Like they go speak at events. They do this thing. They're living and breathing marketing on yes. their own. You know, yes, we yes. want them to lead our, our strategic unit. That's exactly it. Like, this person lives and breathes marketing. Yeah. That's the kind of person we want. And you're totally right. By being visible on X or whatever, Twitter yeah. <laughs> or LinkedIn, is you're showcasing that you're so passionate about this that you're likely using your free time yep. to do this. Yep. 
I certainly don't have time during my work day to do any of the posts that I have. Thank God for scheduling. Yeah. But, you know, I spend pretty much every night on some doing some element of elevating my personal brand, elevating my thoughts, elevating the podcast, getting somebody lined up for the podcast. And that that's a passion for me. And yeah. I think that shows. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Jamie, this has been a super fun conversation. I am so thankful for you and your time and, and all the work that you're doing in this space. For those tuning in, if you're not already following Jamie, we'll have links to her social handles in the show notes below. We'll also have links to her podcast, Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. If you haven't listened to an episode yet, I highly recommend you you check it out. There are a number of great episodes. They're all great, but a number of great recent ones too that I highly recommend you you stream and go ahead and give her a follow and a subscribe on, on that show as well. Jamie, any last words or any, anywhere else you'd like folks to kind of, you know, visit if they if they want to connect with you or learn a little bit more from you? Yeah, I mean, feel free to reach out. Like Zach said, my my contacts will be in the show notes. I'm very happy to let people pick my brain. I'm trying to kind of like scale it back to like one a week instead yeah. of there was a while where I was doing a lot. So it might be a couple of weeks before I can get you on my calendar, but super happy to talk to anybody. Happy to talk to people who are interested in exploring career opportunities. I will probably always be hiring someone just because that's when you have a big enough apartment, you have, you know, vacant positions. Just feel free to reach out. I'm happy to connect. Wonderful. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Zach. Hey, all Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Enrollify podcast. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing learning community of 4,000 members, and we'd love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.